It was a warm summer evening. The river Veld flowed lazily through the forest, its ripples and eddies reflecting the golden light of the setting sun. Its banks, all covered in wildflowers, sloped gently down to the water's edge. To the west, no more than a few minutes of walking away from the Veld, lay the village where Theoda lived. Theoda was a young girl, only nine years old at the time. She and her friends often played along the banks of the river. Sometimes they even bothered to remember their parents' words of warning about the dangers of its sluggish waters. There was little to fear most days. The river's bed was shallow and its waters were tranquil, at least under normal circumstances. It was only when sudden rains swept in from the coast that the river became a subtle, deadly threat. Its typically sedate currents would become swift and the water level would rise in great surges, flooding up the once peaceful banks to sweep the unsuspecting off of their feet. The skies, however, were clear that evening. The children were racing about, playing their usual games, when something unexpected caught their attention. A horse. They were all familiar with horses, naturally. What gave them pause, though, was that this horse had no rider, nor did it have a bridle or saddle. It was wild. It walked calmly along the water's edge, just within the river's grasp. Its coat was a dark, lustrous brown, slightly damp despite the fact that the water swirling about its hooves was only a few inches deep. The beast was calm, sedate, and it paced slowly forward until it had drawn near the children. As it slowed to a halt, they backed away cautiously. The sun was still warm and the birds still sang peacefully, but a cold note of tension had risen in the atmosphere. The horse turned its head towards them with idle curiosity. The children's nerves broke one by one, and one by one they fled away from the river, back towards their home. The waters of Veldrun the streams and rivers, ponds and lakes, are reputed to be the home of water spirits of all sorts. They can be benevolent, apathetic, or outright malicious. Some are peaceful, some are violent, and some, like the Kelpie, are deceptive. The Kelpie often takes the form of a horse, hardly an unusual sight in Veldrun. It lures the unwitting towards it, coaxing them step by step within reach. It doesn't attack. No, it simply waits for curiosity to get the best of its prey. Humans, generally speaking, have a weakness for animals. We're empathetic, curious, compassionate. According to folklore, the Kelpie uses this to its advantage. When a wayfarer approaches, their curiosity piqued by this strange, seemingly friendly creature waiting patiently for them. The Kelpie stays motionless until its hapless victim reaches out to stroke its neck. The slightest touch adheres its prey to the Kelpie. Even so much as laying a hand upon it seals the individual's fate. Then, all at once, it lunges for the water, dragging the poor soul along with it to the depths, where it devours them. It might sound ludicrous. You could be forgiven for disbelieving the legends. Across the world, fairy tales have emerged to teach children about the dangers of deep water. 
and the story of the Kelpie neatly fits that mold. Other stories deviate in the specifics, but match the general pattern. A spirit of nature, often taking the form of a horse, a hound, a handsome man, or a beautiful woman, emerges from the water to lure the unsuspecting to their deaths. The Shielty, for instance, tell stories of the Nock, which takes the form of a man with an enchanted harp that lures women to ruin. The threat of the Kelpie, however, was known by Theoda and all of her friends. They had grown up on stories of the monster, told by their parents at bedtime. The horse may well have simply been a wild horse, familiar with humans from living in close proximity to the village. It's impossible to say with absolute certainty, although reason would dictate that it was most likely an entirely mundane animal. More often than not, though, fear is a more compelling motive than logic. And as unlikely as it may have been, the threat of the Kelpie was enough to send the children safely back home, away from the river's edge. Welcome to a world very much like our own, but with a crucial difference. In this world, folklore is rooted in stark reality. My name is John Kernett, and I'll be guiding you through stories of strange events, close encounters, political conflicts, and tragic history all set in a unique world that blends reality and mythology. This is the Wayfarer's Compendium. In the year 128 North Tide, on the mainland to the west of Veldrun, and no more than two days' travel inland, lay the village of Pelzen. It was a minuscule settlement, little more than a cluster of houses in a rough circle around a ceremonial bonfire, which was kept lit at all times. It sat in a secluded dell, alongside a burbling river that wound through the valley towards a serene lake, and from there on to the sea. The houses were unlike the rectangular stone buildings of the Veldruni, or the slant-roofed longhouses of the Shielti. Instead, they were constructed in the style of the Cassivian people, simple wooden abodes and curved stone towers with peaked thatch roofs. The inhabitants of Pelzen were farmers for the most part, growing millet and barley and supplementing their diets with fish from the river. There was no king in that land at the time. The tribes that lived there governed themselves, with highly inconsistent results. The roads were dangerous, and bandits scavenged the highways with few repercussions. Travelers were infrequent, as you might expect. The village was so remote that the arrival of even a solitary merchant was a notable event. The small, effeminate man in question had entered the village with a wagon of odds and ends far too luxurious for the poor denizens of Pelzen to afford. The stir caused by the merchant's arrival had quickly been drowned out by a far more urgent matter. A local fisherman had washed ashore downriver of the settlement. 
His body was naked, his lungs full of water, and dark purple bruises stood out around his neck. Almost as though someone had violently forced him below the surface of the water and left his corpse to be carried away by the river. The news sent shockwaves through the typically quiet village. There had been no signs of highwaymen in the area, and there was no way the fisherman's injuries could have been the work of an animal. The residents of Pelzen were forced to uneasily consider the possibility of a killer living amongst them. But the traveling merchant posited a different theory, one drawn from his own experiences journeying from town to town and hearing stories from across the land. Perhaps it was not a human who committed the murder. Perhaps it was instead the work of a Rasalka. Tales of the Rasalka are mixed. Some present them as benevolent fairies who bring life-giving water from rivers and oceans to the fields. But other stories aren't nearly so lenient. According to the other tales, Rasalka, much like their equine counterpart, the Kelpie, are vicious, vengeful spirits that prey upon men in particular. In all of the legends, however, they take the same form, a beautiful woman emerging from the water. The theory spread like wildfire through the tiny settlement. As the furor grew into a near panic, there was only one individual the citizens of Pelzin could turn to. Zelomir was an elderly man with a limp in his right leg and an inscrutable demeanor. He was the Volkiv of the village, fulfilling a similar role to that of the Druids of Veldrun. He conducted ceremonies to honor the gods and read omens in the fire, water, and sky. He was a wise man, a sage, a sorcerer, the natural person to turn to when faced with the threat of a Rasalka. He could usually be found tending to the bonfire in the center of the village, keeping the sacred fire alive, sitting on a stump nearby, and gazing into the depths of the inferno for hours on end, as though watching a tableau that only he was privy to play out in the dancing flames. Zelomir had already heard the rumors, of course. His parishioners pleaded with him for guidance. Was it a Rasalka? How could they protect themselves? They depended upon the river for food. Was it safe to continue fishing there? Through the barrage of questions, he said little and simply stared into the flames. The following morning, the wise man rose from his spot by the bonfire and announced that he was going into the wilderness. The villagers were to bring him food and drink at sunset. They were confused and upset at this strange, unexplained decision. But who were they to question the man who spoke for the gods? At sunset, one of their number went upriver with bread and a skin of dark ale, leaving them with the Volkiv as he kept vigil. The priest was motionless, staring into the depths of the river just as he had looked into the fire. He remained there through the night. As dawn broke the next day, the village awoke to find the Volkiv back at his usual post next to the ever-burning fire. They crowded around him, asking what he had seen out in the wilderness, but he simply shook his head and refused to speak. There were rumblings of discontent in Pelzen throughout the day. When the Volkiv announced that he would once again be sojourning out into the wilderness, this time heading downstream, and that the villagers were to bring him food and drink, they were reluctant. Nevertheless, the elderly priest's commands were obeyed, 
His reputation as a wise man far outweighed the pall of fear that had been cast over the settlement. He left shortly thereafter, heading east towards the mouth of the valley. Supplies were brought to him, and he stayed there until dawn. The Volkiv returned to Pelzin early the next morning. He rested briefly, but soon arose once more and announced that he would be traveling even farther east, all the way to the lake at the mouth of the valley. This time, however, there was a new volunteer to bring Zelomir his supplies. As the sun lowered in the sky, the son of the murdered fisherman set out for the lake. He left the bread and water skin with the Volkiv, but did not return to the village. Instead, he doubled back and hid by the tree line some 30 feet from the shore. From his vantage point, he could see the elderly man standing by the water's edge, gazing across to the far shore. Night fell as the unusual pair waited. As the sun rose the next morning, the village awoke to find Zelomir and the fisherman's son back. The Volkiv informed the villagers that the Rasalka had been driven off and that the waters were safe to fish once more. Questions erupted from the assembled townsfolk. So it was a spirit, then. What did the Volkiv do? How could he know that the spirit was truly gone? Zelomir, true to character, did not respond to the queries. He simply repeated that the Rasalka was gone and that the river was no longer a threat. And that was, officially at least, the end of it. And yet, new rumors began to circulate. The fisherman's son, you see, had told the other residents what he had witnessed during that long, cold night. The Volkiv had stood motionless for the better part of an hour. Then, suddenly, he spoke in a booming voice that carried across the still waters of the lake. He threatened terrible curses upon whatever unseen listeners he was addressing. Leave now and never return, or suffer a fate worse than death. Three days he had waited for them, and three days he had abjured them. Go now. May the gods have mercy upon them, for they would find none here. His voice was commanding and seemed to shake the very stones of the ground. The fisherman's son crouched motionless with bated breath for what felt like an eternity, before, slowly, silhouettes began emerging from between the trees across the water. It was not one Rasalka, but many, almost a dozen standing in the pale moonlight. The women turned and left silently, heading east, away from Pelzin and they disappeared back into the forest. The story was met with a certain amount of skepticism, but there was simply no alternative that seemed reasonable. What could the figures have possibly been but spirits of the water? There were no more disappearances, no more sightings. The Volkiv had spoken true, it seemed. The Rasalkas were gone. The waters were safe. In the realm of the Cassivian people, there also lay a prosperous town known as Velsava. 
It was not an exceedingly large town, but it was sizable enough and situated on a well-traveled highway that stretched all the way to the coast, following the gentle curves of the river Olval. Caravans ferried rare goods from the west all the way to the shores of the Rhyme and back, each passing through the town of Velsavau. The heart and soul of the town, as anyone who lived there at the time could tell you, was Babcha Elena. She was an elderly woman with a sharp tongue and a quick wit. Her children and her children's children all lived in the town, and she somehow seemed to know everything that happened within its walls. Her door was always open. When visitors came for advice, and regardless of what they came for, they always left with advice, she dispensed equal parts wisdom and home-brewed honey wine from her comfortable chair near the blazing hearth, where a cauldron of rich, savory stew perpetually simmered. Babcha Elena was a vidunya, a wise woman, a sage, a witch. You can think of a vidunya as the feminine counterpart to a vulcan. They both filled similar niches to their people, providing spiritual guidance and honoring the gods. Poor unfortunate souls didn't always stop by Babcha Elena's home for just advice. Often they came for talismans, medicine, or any number of other unusual remedies. As you can imagine, she was simultaneously beloved and feared, not least of all because of her almost preternatural knowledge of the town's going-ons. The trouble began with a strangely familiar turn of fate. At the banks of the river Olval, downstream of Velsavau, where the rapids began and the waters became turbulent, a corpse had been found lodged between the rocks. It was a man of middling age, stripped of his clothing and with vicious bruises across his neck. He wasn't a local, of that the townsfolk were sure. Nobody recognized his face, and there were no personal belongings that could identify the deceased. History continued to repeat itself. Rumors began to spread that a water spirit had lured the unfortunate wayfarer to his demise. Rumors that began with an itinerant merchant who had recently arrived in Velsavau. He was a short, thin man with pale blonde hair. His attire was rich, his voice high and soft, and his hygiene was impeccable. Something of a rarity in those days. According to the man, he had witnessed a very similar scene unfold in his travels. A fisherman had been found naked and dead in a river, the victim of an attack by a Rasalka. The lurid story quickly became the talk of the town. The denizens of Velsavau were farther removed from the folklore of the countryside, and although everyone had heard stories of fairies and devils, none had lived through such a tale. Days passed. The commotion might have faded and eventually been forgotten, if it weren't for the disappearances. Local men began to go missing. First a well-to-do cloth merchant, then the alderman's wastrel son, and more followed. All wealthy, all men. No corpses washed ashore, but what else could have happened to them? The fire of gossip had already been lit by the traveling merchant, and now piles of tinder had been heaped upon it. The town entered a state of panic. By all external appearances, 
Babcha Elena was unaffected by the disappearances. She extended an invitation for the traveling merchant to visit her, and, as the merchant quickly found out, nobody in the town of Velsavau refused an invitation from the Vedunia. He was escorted to the witch's home by two of her grandsons, both strapping young men with somber, serious dispositions. Nobody knows exactly what the wise woman and the merchant spoke of, but he departed after maybe half an hour. Her grandsons left the town shortly thereafter at her behest. A few of the braver witnesses asked Elena what errand they were running that would take them so far from Velsavau, but she laughed off the questions. It was nothing of importance, just fetching something for an old woman. The day rolled onwards as the town buzzed with nervous anticipation. Travelers still passed in and out of the town, but they were few and far between. Word had spread to the surrounding villages, and the river Olval, once a vital source of food, water, and trade, had become a wellspring of terror. You can imagine the townsfolk's shock when Babcha Elena's grandsons returned not alone, but with a woman. They also carried with them a very recognizable piece of jewelry, the alderman's signet ring taken from his missing son. A crowd had formed around them by the time the Vedunia arrived at the town's gate. Her grandchildren had returned from their errand, it seemed. The spectators' confusion turned to anger as the witch explained what had happened. When she spoke to the traveling merchant, the one who had started the entire rumor of nymphs luring men to their deaths, she instantly realized that the merchant was not what he seemed. In fact, he wasn't a man at all. The merchant was a woman. Her hair had been cut short, and her foppish attire obscured her figure, but Babcha Elena was more perceptive than most. The wise woman had spoken with the merchant at length, plying her with honey wine and coaxing out information about her experiences with the supposed Rasalka. By the time their conversation was over, the inebriated merchant had revealed enough for Elena to send her grandsons on a mission to prove that there was nothing supernatural happening here only a group of bandits cleverly masking their predations with a story designed to incite a panic in the superstitious masses. A bystander mustered up the courage to question the wise woman. How had her grandsons found the bandits? The answer was that they hadn't. As it turns out, two well-to-do young men make for excellent bait when their quarry is posing as a Rasalka, a spirit that preys exclusively on men. A mob was assembled. More sympathetic observers may have described it as a militia, but the end result was the same either way. They followed the Vedunia's grandsons to where the woman had been found, and stormed the brigand's hiding place. A strange display awaited them. Almost a dozen women, armed with swords and spears amidst a vast trove of goods. Fine silk robes, rings and brooches, even an entire carriage emblazoned with the sigil of a well-known family from a neighboring town. To top off the horde, a chest was cracked open to reveal vast sums of coins, bounteous silver interspersed with piles of brass, copper, and the odd piece of gold. The array of wealth in front of the townsfolk hinted at a morbid possibility. Only a single body may have washed onto the shore of the River Oval, 
but how many dozens more had floated all the way to the sea, never to be seen again? Justice was swift and brutal. Before the ringleader of the bandit clan was put before the headsman's axe, she was interrogated. The group had ranged quite far, in fact. They had spent months traveling from settlement to settlement, stirring up rumors and assailing the wealthiest travelers they could lure off of the beaten path. One of their number would go into town and sell any loot from the previous settlement, before moving on to the next, where they would repeat the whole scheme. Before Bobcha Elena saw through the merchant's disguise, they had been unstoppable. There was, in fact, only a single village that had been spared throughout their rampage. A tiny, sleepy farming town in a valley, next to a small lake. According to the bandit's leader, they had tried to set up camp multiple times. It was not out of pity that they avoided the village. Each time they attempted to lay their trap, they had been stymied by a guardian spirit that seemed to know their every move. Wherever they tried to set up an ambush, the spirit would appear in the guise of an elderly man and threaten curses upon them. In the end, though, there was no curse quite as dangerous as the Witch of Velsavau. If you enjoy the Wayfarer's Compendium, the best way to support the podcast is to share it with your friends. Thank you for listening.